morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open it to Jude, the book of Jude. Jude is one of the shortest books in the Bible, and because of that, uh, I want us to actually read through the entire book uh, so that we can know what we're gonna, not only what we're going to study today, but also what will come in the next six weeks. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went, went after strange flesh, flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defiled the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gain and advantage. But you, beloved, 
taught to remember the words that we spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers falling after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building your, yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we go through this book, your wonderful truth, that it will have an impact not just today, but forever until we see you, Lord. Lord, we ask uh, for us now to be attentive so we know your word and to apply it to our lives. In your son's name I pray. Amen. It has been said that Jude is the most neglected New Testament book. And for some, they reject, it's neglected because of how short it is. Uh, some people have can preach through Jude uh, with one or two sermons. And others refuse to preach through the book of Jude because of some of the complex passages that are in this book. Uh, in, as we were reading through it, did you notice some of the extra-biblical texts? Some things that you kind of heard before, but not really. This, this book quotes from 1 Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. These are, uh, these are extra-biblical texts. These are these oral traditions that were common knowledge to the people, and Jude cites them. And that's a question like, well, why do we take some books into uh, the canon of Scripture while others we don't? And when we get to those passages, I'll explain it. Uh, but for now, this is considered one of the most complex books because it highlights and it draws from extra-biblical passages. But I think that one of the, the main reasons why people neglect teaching and preaching through Jude is because it's a call for people to be countercultural. And what I mean by that is that this book is an active call for believers to confront false teachers and also confront them with truth. And that's not an easy thing to do. This book teaches on judgment for those who deny the faith and those who follow false teachers. My hope in teaching the, through the book of Jude is that we learn from this word and every word of scripture so we can be more equipped, so that we can know God, so we can walk faithfully with him. During the last few weeks, uh, some of you have come up to me and asked, why Jude? Why, are we, why do you want to go through the book of Jude? And I've given different responses here and there, but today I want to answer that question. I want to just very quickly go through five reasons why I want to preach through the book of Jude. The first, and it's the most obvious, it's in the Bible. Every single book, chapter, and verse is breathed out by God. It is given for a life of holiness. It's given so we can commune with God. It's given so that we can define what error and truth is. It's given us so that we can know God more. It's the most obvious reason why we want to study through the book of Jude, because it's God-breathed. It is God-inspired. 
Every book shows us an aspect of God and humanity. And I hope that as we study through this, that we know more about our Savior, more about our God, and even our biblical view of ourself, which is the second point why I want to study through the book of Jews, that we need to have a biblical, accurate picture of self. This book makes a contrast between those who are following the faith and those who are rebelling against the faith. This book makes a contrast between those who follow true teaching and false teaching. This book shows us our identity that's hidden in Christ. It also reveals what a person with wrong teaching looks like. Those who abide and teach false doctrine has a certain indicator, their certain lifestyle that they lived, and we can identify that and know that what they teach is false. Not only do we, I want to teach through Jude because it's in the Bible or that we have a biblical view of ourselves, but also that we must be people that are equipped to contend for the faith. That as you read through this, you know more about God and his words so you can defend the, the faith. This is a conviction the more bold we become to contend for the faith. Convictions build confidence in Christ. You want to have the right conviction so you can contend confidently for Christ. Next reason is we, I want to study through Jews is that we must be challenged about our Bible knowledge. As, remember, as we went, went through this, this, just the reading, you notice that there's a whole bunch of Old Testament references. There are 11 of them. And all of these old references, Old Testament references, are placed here intentionally by God to show us the reality of false teachers. In other words, all of the things that Judah is confronting, these things have happened in the past. These things are not new. The more we know the Old Testament references, the richer this book becomes for us. I am convinced that as a culture, we were becoming more and more biblically illiterate. When I was in college, and I remember people that just fell away from the faith, they could not they were surprised to know that there's a talking donkey in the Bible, and I, which throws me out because, like, you know that there was a talking serpent as well. How did you get past that and be okay with it and not get to the talking donkey part and reject that? There are those who can't understand why God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet both of these references are in this book, and if we know the Old Testament passage and what they mean, the, the more richer this, this, this study would be. If one rejects the Old Testament, this book wouldn't make any sense to them. We need both the Old Testament and the New Testament to make sense of everything that is going on so we can have the full knowledge of God, so we understand what God expects of us. That's my hope, is that we strengthen our knowledge of the Bible. And lastly, we must be warning people about judgment. Jude highlights the false religions that was, will, and those that have arrived. And many has given themselves to these lies and that, that these lies that lead to destruction. I googled how many religions are there in the world, and there's 4,300 religions, approximately. About 4,300 religions. That's a daunting task for the church, to go out into the world and try to con- and share the gospel to 4,300 different religions. Yet this is what we're called to do. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations. We're, go- we're, we're called to go and evangelize to those that are lost. False religion are not the enemy. They are the mission field. And we have a moral responsibility to share the gospel to them. With that said in mind, let's go to the text. Before uh, we start, you know, I want to give some little background information about this book. Uh, at the time of was writing, there were both moral and doctrinal apostasy. Oftentimes in commentary, Judas is paired up with First and Second Peter. And it's more associated with 2 Peter because 2 Peter 
addresses false teachers as well. In fact, Jude cites 2 Peter 3.3. In Jude 17 and 18, it cites 2 Peter 3.3. 2 Peter 3.3 reads this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lust. And if you look at Jude 17 and 18, it reads, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers falling after their own lust. There's a connection between all of the teachers of God's word. That there is a harmony that there will be false teachers that are coming. Like most churches in the early church, persecution came from both outside and within. Both in terms of the, poli- the politics at the time and the spiritual uh, false teachers that crept into the church. Politically, the Romans were highly aggressive towards the Christians. They saw Christians as an abomination to society. They thought that Christians were cannibals because they did uh, communion when they saw the bread and the wine. They, thought, they heard that, oh, Christians eat the, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And then they even they assumed that Christians were people that committed incest because they called each other brothers and sisters. And there's also the spiritual attack within. Within the church, there was false teacher crept into the church and trying to take people out by, by adding or taking away or distorting scripture. It's because of these turmoils, both in terms of political and spiritual problems around and in the church, that Jude instructs the church to contend for the faith. They needed to confront false teacher and false living. And this is the struggle of, of the church from, for, until Christ returns. This is going to be the struggle. If a person fails morally, it's because their doctrine is wrong. And if a person's doctrine is wrong, moral failure is close behind. They go hand in hand. Accurate doctrine means accurate living. If the person is not willing to live in truth, don't expect truth to be lived out of them. Theology matters. Jude's going to show us by confronting bad morals that you can trace them back to bad doctrine. Bad living is found in bad doctrine, and bad doctrine produces bad living. This applies to all of us as well. Whenever you are in sin, or whenever you confront sin in other people, you notice that you're confronting their sin because of their failure in understanding what the Bible teaches. When someone decides that they should leave their spouse, they, they fail to understand what God expects of them in marriage. They forget what God has taught about marriage. When someone is discontent with their job, with their kids, with anything in life, they forget the doctrine of God's salvation. Every action that we do is based on theology or lack thereof. And in these two short verses, these two short opening verses, Jude helps us have an accurate view of ourself. He wants to have an accurate view of ourself before we contend for the faith. As Christians, we, we know that we're called, loved, and kept by God. But how does that impact our life every single day? All of these three things reveal God and how we are to live. A person's doctrine and moral, li- moral living is completely contingent on how they view God. So before we get into the rest of the book, before we contend for the faith, before we're equipped to go out and contend for those that are false teachers, we must understand the gospel first. We must first understand our own salvation, which is our outline this morning. Two points. The characteristic of salvation and the effects of salvation. The characteristic of salvation and the effects of salvation. Look at verse 1. Jude. We'll stop, we'll stop right there. Jude is a common name. 
If you look at the side references of your Bible, some of you guys have the word, it has the word Judas. <gasps> yes, the original name of this writer is Judas. The reason why it's translated Jude is because one of the, because the Latin translators didn't want to associate Judas with the Judas, this Judas with the Judas that betrayed Jesus. They wanted to make uh, a distinction between the two. But yet Judas, or Jude, is a common name. It's a variant of Judah from the Old Testament, and they translate it to just disassociate the two. In 2016, at the end of 2016, there was a list of baby names that came out. And the idea is to show, like, what are the most popular names of that year. And I found it to be interesting because it gives a list of names of boys and girls. And for boys that year, I mean, there's generally the, the normal typical uh, biblical names like Daniel and uh, John. These are, like, the top names. But then the one, one of the ones that skyrocketed to the top was the name Kylo. So you guys know what that is, right? It's from Star Wars. It's the villain from Star Wars. Some parents at 2016 decided to name their kid after a character that killed his parents, which is hopefully doesn't happen. But on the girl side, there was a name that was on the, the top 20 and eventually dropped significantly. And again, I'm not saying that this is a bad name, because I, I know there's people here that are named this, and if you see this person, just know that it's, that name is not bad. I'm just listing stats here. But that, the, the girl name that dropped significantly that year was a name, Caitlin. And it dropped drastically because of a certain individual that changed his gender. And people didn't want to associate with that, so they stopped naming their daughters Caitlin. You get the idea that when we, when we see the word Jude, it's actually supposed to be Judas. And the reason why it's Jude is so that we don't associate that that we're not making that connection between Jude, the writer here, and Judas, the traitor of Jesus. Though it is interesting that Jude, or Judas, is going to warn people about apostasy while his own name is associated with the greatest apostasy, apostate in history. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Both in Matthew and Mark's account, the Pharisees will ask him, oh, isn't Jesus, isn't his brother James and Jude? And that's to show that there's a human nature to the relationship that he has. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, and, his, and he, he, he is, he's related to him. Although he was a half-brother of Jesus, he and the siblings did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until Christ died and rose again. Jude, like many who did not believe Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry, he was like the rest of the world. It's probably because Jude understood how it feels to doubt that in verse 22 of this book, he, t he tells People show mercy to those who are doubting. Jude understands what it's like to doubt. So he tells people who are struggling with salvation to show mercy to them. I wonder, I wonder how many of us, when we evangelize or when we share the gospel, we share the gospel with a prideful tone. Do we have this judgmental attitude? Do we see ourselves as better because we get the gospel? Do we show mercy to those who know God because do we show mercy to those who don't know God because God has shown mercy to us? When we understand how much mercy is shown to us, we will show mercy to those who are doubting. Notice the next phrase, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. This word bond servant should be translated slave. And this, in, in our American culture, we, we hate that word because of the association it has with American slavery. But understand that American slavery is different from what the Bible describes as slavery. The slavery that's mentioned here is not the same as the one in American history. 
Back in American history, people uh, would kidnap people. They'll take people out of their homes and then be- make them become slaves. Back then in the New Testament time, slavery is, for, for some of them, is they sold themselves into slavery. They were in a, f- a great financial debt, and the one way to get out of it is to sell yourself into slavery. And even then, there are rules and restrictions that slavery is not supposed to be forever. It has a limited amount of time. Even the Old Testament talks about if there is a slave, you keep them for six years. But the seventh year, if they want to go, you let them go. But if they want to be part of your family, what they would do is that they would bring the slave to the front of the door and they will pierce their ear so that everyone outside will see that this slave is now mine forever. And it beca- that slave no longer becomes just merely a slave, but they become someone that gets the inheritance. This slave will become like a son to the master. American slavery is not the same as the slavery that it describes in the Bible. So don't let anyone that tells you, oh, the Bible promotes slavery because it's different. It's not the same. Being called a slave of Christ is a common phrase in not just the New Testament, but the Old as well. In the Old Testament, the word that's used is servant. And all the patriarchs, all the faithful saints call themselves servants of God. For example, Abraham in Psalm 105 verse 42 for he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. Moses is described this way. Nehemiah 9.14. So you have made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. King David is described this way. Psalm 89.3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. It's better to be the slave to the king of kings than to be a king to have many slaves. This phrase, slave, implies that, that we are owned, that we are purchased by someone. Matthew 20, 28 tells us that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Christ gave himself up so that we are no longer a slave of sin, but we're a slave of Christ. Like I said, a slave back then, who did sell themselves into slavery, can be ransomed out. They can be freed if someone was willing to purchase them out of it. We were all at this point in our life at some, we were all at this point before we were saved. We were all, we all because of our sin, accumulated an infinite amount of debt that we cannot pay for, and the only way that can be paid is through Jesus Christ himself. We were no longer slaves to sin, but slave to Christ. And this, this shows a humility here from Jude, because he went from unbelief to becoming a slave. He went from seeing Christ as his half-brother to humbling himself to, to, to be Jesus' slave. Jesus now has lordship over his life. And Jude no, long, Jude no longer associates and calls himself a half-brother of Jesus. Rather, he sees something, there's, he sees something greater, and that is that he calls himself a slave of Christ. He did not commence the letter by emphasizing the privilege and honor of being related to Jesus in a human relation, but rather emphasizing his privilege as a slave to Jesus. I imagine Jude growing up with Jesus as someone that just constantly afflicts his older brother. I'm sure he taunted Jesus. I'm sure he insulted him. He played pranks. But yet Jesus responded perfectly. He's, Jesus is the only child where a parent could say, you should be more like your brother, and it's absolutely true. <laughs> when Jude became saved, he humbled himself to be a slave. I wonder how many of us share the same type of humility that Jude has. You know, our culture, it's sad that our culture views Christ in such a low way. 
Oftentimes when you hear a name Jesus, it's used as an expletive, or where they see Jesus as their homeboy or their friend. Perhaps we used to have that view of Christ. Perhaps we used to have the superficial view of Jesus. My question is, do you still have that superficial view of Jesus? Do we see him as the Lord of lords and we as his slave? Jesus is not merely our friend. He is infinitely more. Though he is our friend, he is so much more than that. Being a slave of Christ means that we have exclusive, that Christ has exclusive ownership of us. That we belong to him. We don't answer to anyone else. He's the one that owns us. The devil can make lies, but if we do not belong to him, we are purchased and we're owned by him. We have complete submission to him. Jesus is our master. We listen to him. Everything that he teaches in scripture, we apply it to our lives. We don't listen to extra biblical sources. We don't listen to words inspired by men. We listen to God and God alone because he is our master. We have a singular devotion to him. Because he is our master, we devote to him alone. This is why Christ said you can ask for money and, and the Lord. You can only choose one. And if you are a slave of Christ, you have a singular devotion to glorify God in all that you do. We also have total dependence on him. Because he is our master, just like a master provides for his slave. The, the, the master protects his slave. The master watches over his slave. That is our that's what we have as well. We have a father that is, that is going to protect us and provide for us. We have total dependency on him. We also have a personal accountability to him. All that we do, we have to give an account to him and to him alone. These should highlight our walk. As slaves, we're exclusively owned by Christ, completely submitting to Christ, have a singular devotion to Christ, total dependency on Christ, and are held accountable to Christ. All that we do is to glorify him and him alone. Notice the next phrase, and the brother of James. His brother is the leader of the Jerusalem church. This is the same brother who wrote the, 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 epistle, the, the book of James. He's the, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. The reason why he did this, so you can identify, like, this is not Judas Iscariot, but this is Jude, the half-brother of James. This is to verify to the readers who this Judas is. There isn't much known about Judas outside of this. Uh, the only reference we have in church history uh, pertains to his grandsons who remained faithful even though they were put under trial for their faith, which shows us that Jude was able to disciple his children who was able to disciple the next generation as well. The life of faithfulness, the life of making disciples and proclaiming Christ was in the life of Jude. Notice, after he describes his own identity, he points us to all of us. He addresses every Christian. Notice the first half of verse 1. To those who are called. Jude is writing to those who understand that they are called. The people who are saved, regenerated, and redeemed believers are the called. Those who receive the call and turn from their sins are known as the called. The Bible uses the call in two ways. There's an external call. And an internal call. The external one is just a basic proclamation of the gospel. Whenever someone shares the gospel with you or when you share the gospel with someone else, that's just a basic proclamation of the gospel. It's a general sense. Everyone who simply hears God's word can, can, are called by God to repent. And there's the internal call. The internal, the, this is what we call regeneration. It means that when God calls you in your internal life, he, bring, he, he gives you life through his word. We go from dead to our sins to being made alive in Christ. 
When a person hears the gospel and gets saved, it is because God called them to life. This is, again, not just a New Testament concept, but the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 43.1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Jude describes himself and every other saint as someone that's being called. They are called, both the Old and the New Testament. They are people known as the called. If you are saved here today, you are one of the called. There was nothing about us that deserves to be saved. There's nothing about us that we can do to even achieve salvation. Nothing that you can offer or attempt. We were all dead in our sins, and God gave us life because of his word. God gave you life because he called us to him. And because of that, we are made alive in him. And for those who are here who have not received Christ, the Lord is calling you to repent. Every time you hear the gospel, every time you hear someone preach God's word to you, that is God's sovereign plan for you to be there to hear God's word so that you can turn from your sin and place your faith in him. The call for non-believers is a cry for you to turn from your sin. Jesus is our Lord. And if you turn and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You have no excuse. Whenever you, whenever you hear God's word, you cannot say, objectively say, well, I've never heard of Jesus. Don't reject the call. If you are here, you do not know Christ. Do not reject the call today. Judah then expands on our salvation. Not only are we the called, but we're also beloved in God the Father. Look at that next phrase. Beloved in God the Father. We are loved by God the Father. Jeremiah 31.3 reads, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God loves us. What a great reality that is for those who are called and to love him. He loved us first, and out of that we have a demonstration of love to, him, to, to the Lord and to other people as well. God's love is something that we need to be proclaiming to the world. In a church that's filled with Calvinists and Reformed uh, theologians or people with, in the Reformed circle, we have a tendency to focus on some of the attributes of God. We, we have a tendency to focus things on like sovereignty, wrath, holiness, judgment. And although all of these things are true, sometimes we neglect love. Do you realize that if you forget to think or describe God as love, we, you're, you're, worshiping or worship, you're worshiping a God that's no different from the Muslim faith. You're worshiping a God that's similar to Allah of the Quran. One time I was uh, evangelizing college, in my college campus, and uh, it was late at night, and it was about an hour before a Bible study, and there was a light pole, and there were three dudes there. So I thought, well, I'll just invite them out. So I went over there, and I said, hey, hello, friend. I'm from Grace on Campus. Would you like to come to Bible study with me? And all of them were like, no, man, we're Muslim. And I was like, okay, well, tell me about your faith. Tell me about uh, what you believe. And that, it, it created some opportunity for them to share what they believe. And then they talked about the five pillars of the Muslim faith. And I said, like, oh, great, great. So of one of your five pillars, you talk about you have to pray regularly, right? And one of the things that the Muslim faith do is that they pray and they, they list the attributes of, all, of Allah. When they pray, they're praying through the attributes of Allah. 
So I asked them as a way of just, this is curiosity. How many can you name? Between the three of you, how many of the attributes of Allah can you name? And then they, and they listed a few. They listed things like kindness, provision, and just. And there were about like 12 or 13 of them, just attributes. Of the three of them, they came up with 12 or 13 of them. Then I asked them, of all of the things, of all the attributes of Allah, are any of them love? They looked at me. They looked at each one another. They looked at the light. They looked back at the floor. They looked back at me. And then they started explaining that. They said that, well, things like kindness, provision, and just are attributes of love. And then my response was like, well, not really. I mean, you can be just and not be loving towards the person. You could provide for someone without loving them. And you could even be kind and not actually love them. And this is why I, I, I use that as a means to, to bring them to Jesus. Why I'm a Christian is that Jesus demonstrated his love towards us by dying for us. That he loved us first. One of the chief attributes of our Father is that he is a God of love. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for, God, for love is from God. And everyone who, he, who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, side note, the Quran actually does talk about that Allah loves, but it's always contingent on the, on the, on the person, who, on the Muslim. It's, it'll say things like, in the surahs, it'll say that Allah loves those who seek him. Allah loves those who, who depend on him. It's always based on what you have to do to gain divine favor. Christianity is radically different because God loved us first. We respond to his love, not, not the other way around. He loved us in spite of ourselves. This is what makes... God, a beloved father. This is why we call beloved in God the Father. Jude understands for, for himself and for every saint that we are people that is unique because we are loved by the God of love. Jude personally experienced this because, remember, he rejected Christ for his whole life when he was there. He denied Jesus. Every single time that he sinned against his older half-brother, every single time he doubted him, it didn't make any sense to him until he saw that his sin nailed his nailed his half-brother to the cross. That's when everything made sense, when he realized that all the times he offended him was not just offending his brother, but he's offending the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is why Christ died for him and why Christ died for us. is because he loves us. Perhaps some of you know what it's like when you experience unrequired love. Perhaps some of you have parents that don't love you the way that you want them to. Perhaps some of you guys that are parents have kids that don't love you the way that you want them to. Maybe for some, even your own spouse does not love you. You have friends and other relatives that betray you, and you may have many failures in this life of love, and you, but understand that that love does not fail when it's from God. That does not apply to our, uh, to our Heavenly Father. His love for us is free and it's infinite. We cannot exhaust his love for us. Romans 8 tells us that he Gave, that God gave his own son to us. If he's willing to give the greatest thing, then everything else is nothing to God. The greatest love that you and I will ever experience in this life is from God alone. And let us continue to dwell on that reality. Notice that not only are we, we called and loved, but he also keeps us. Look at that phrase, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's so much theology that's packed into this one word, word for. There's intercessory language, meaning that no matter what happens, we will, uh, Christ will intercede for us, and it will always be assured that he, we will make it to heaven. There's an eternal security as Christians. A true believer will always be kept by Christ forever. John 
10, 28, 29, Christ says, and I will give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. In Ephesians and Revelation, it has this picture of the church being the bride of Christ, that we are going to one day be with Jesus forever the way that a faithful husband is with their, with their wives. We are kept in Christ, by Christ, for Christ, and for the glory of God. We'll never be separated from Christ because it is because if we do, if we do get separated from Christ, then God is a liar. And God is not a liar. All that he said will come to pass. Perhaps the reason why Jude wrote this is because there were some false teachers that crept into the church that said, if you want to be assured your salvation, if you want to be kept in God, the only way to do this is if you do X, Y, and Z, or you say A, B, and C, or if you go to this location. If you do all these things, then God will keep you. But that's not true. God will never leave us or forsake us. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how much lies of the world are trying to tell us, we will never be forsaken by God. Jude in this first verse reminds us all of our standing before God, that we have eternal security through faith in him. This is the identity that we have in Christ. And this is the, most great, this is the greatest and the most honorable title that we have, to be known as a slave of Christ, to be known as a saint, to be known as a child of God. Do you see that as your own primary identity? When you think about your life, do you think the most important thing about you is your ethnicity or your economic standing or your social standing or the things you achieve in life? Do you see that the greatest identity is actually in Christ alone? All of these things, all of the things with racial, economic, these things are considered garbage in relative to being known by God. Jude wants us to know that our salvation first and foremost is that we belong to him. Before we confront false teachers, we must get the gospel right. The basis of contending for the faith is knowing your salvation. And when you know the truth, you can refute error. Not only does Jude want to remind us of our own salvation before we contend against false teachers and false teachings, but Jude also reminds us of the effects of our salvation. Our second point, the effects of our salvation. Notice, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied. Jude in this section is not just merely concluding an introduction, but hopes that knowing our identity in Christ will cause believers to increase in their encounter with false teacher and false living. False teachers and false living will, will, be, will have to be dealt with, yet it is not an easy task. That's why Jude tells them that, he, that they, may mercy, peace, and love be increased. When we confront false teachers or false living, we need all three of these to be multiplied in our lives because confronting error is difficult. We understand these things because God has shown them to us. When we confront false teaching, knowing that, know that God has demonstrated mercy towards us. The first one, mercy, it means to withhold judgments for something that they deserve. We must be willing to deal with people who are under false doctrine and false living with mercy. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Our encounters with those who are under false teaching or are false teachers, when we confront them, it should be flavored with mercy. Mercy because we were all lost once. 
and yet God showed mercy on us. God did not destroy us. He knew how, how wrong our view of him was. He knew that our lives were contrary to what he expects, yet God did not destroy us. God demonstrated mercy. Our God is a merciful God. Therefore, as followers of God, let us be merciful too. Notice the next one, peace. It's a state of harmony. Uh, peace is something that we must show because our God is the ultimate peacemaker. He wants us all to, to make peace with him, and that's what we should do as well. We want to be people when we confront a false teacher that they know that we are trying to confront them to make peace with God. True peace can only be found in truth. Our God is a God of peace because he's also the God of truth. And they both work together. Perhaps some of, some of us in the church refuse to deal with sin and false doctrine. You understand when you do that, you give them, you're giving false peace. Inaction during false doctrine or false living is a lie. It will strive to not let sin thrive, but to call out sin with truth so that people can find peace. Understand that whenever you confront someone with sin, that the goal is not for you to feel good about yourself. When someone hurt your feelings or do some sin, your goal is not to confront them so that you can feel better. Notice that when you confront sin, every time when you point out error with truth, your goal is to try and make sure that they are right with God, that their life is contrary to what the Bible teaches, and if they continue living this way, they will not find peace. And as believers, when we confront those who do not know God, our hope is that they may be made right with God, that they're at peace with God. Our goal is not to win arguments or any selfish gain, but to point people to truth so they can be made peace with God. Not only should we show mercy and peace, not only should those two attributes be multiplied in our lives when we confront false doctrine and false living, but also we must have love too. This word love is agape love. It's the quality of warm regard for someone else and having their best interests in mind. We mentioned earlier how God demonstrated that love to us first. Hey, we must always remember God had our best interests in mind when he died on the cross for us. The love of God should control us, 2 Corinthians 5.14. The greatest way that we show love, the best, the best way to demonstrate love is to point out error, both in and outside the church. If there's a person in the church, you want to correct them, to remind them of the, the joy that they have in Christ and in Christ alone, that sin does not deliver on its promise. And for those outside the church, the greatest thing that you can do, the greatest act of love that you can do is not to give them food or give them shelter, though these things are great and good things, but the greatest thing that you can do to provide for someone outside the church who does not know Christ is to share the gospel with them. False teachers, although we may be in or outside the church, also need the truth. I think sometimes we dismiss false teachers, even false teachers too quickly. You know, when we see the false teachers on TV or on YouTube, the first thing that comes to our mind is that they're going to go to hell, and that should not be the case for us. We should not delight even false teachers to perish. We should be praying for them that they, they repent, that they know God, that they come to his true saving knowledge of him. Because our God isn't, doesn't delight the wicked to perish also. We should be praying for those, even the worst of the false teachers, because there's always hope, even for the worst one. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. That means that we must speak at some point. 
Perhaps some can confront sin, but they do it out of love. You know, we want to confront you, but there's, it's devoid of any sense of love. And yet in 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us that if we are willing to die for someone, and if there is no love behind it, then our sacrificial death is useless. It's pointless. When we confront sin, when we confront error, when we confront false teachers, it must be with love. It must be with their best interest in mind. You honor the God most when you show love by presenting the truth in love. People we connect, people we correct should understand that our confrontation is out of love. So what is the tone that you have when you confront others? Are you guarding your tongue? Are you listening carefully to what they're saying? Or are we just berailing them with, with scripture instead of understanding and lovingly confront them? And we need all three of these. We need mercy, we need peace, and we need love. Some of the examples that Jude gives us later on in this book. There's going to be these false teaching that's so horrendous that it should make us sick. And then yet those false teachers are, even though they were there in the time, they're still around today. There's some things that has happened in the past that, that, pe- that people are now discovering and now are participating in these types of sin. And we need to be prepared. We need to be able to confront them, but we must confront them with mercy, peace, and love. When we get through, as we walk through this book, as we, get, as we preach through this entire book in the next six weeks, we'll see that some of these things are just the, the lowest of depravities, yet we need to confront them in love, mercy, and peace. As we walk through this book, may our understanding inform our identity, may our understanding of our identity in Christ inform how we correct those around us. Understand that you confront sin has nothing to do with what you have done in the cross. There yet nothing have you done to achieve salvation, but rather what Christ has done on the cross. So if, if you understand how much love is shown to you, you will confront others in a loving way. And we pray that we grow in these areas because we will need it. Again, when we, when we look through this text we, and we see how debauched people can be and we see how wicked man can be, we see that it it's, it's, has happened before and it will happen again. But yet the response to both is the same. And that is that we need to love on them the way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray. God of mercy, peace, and love, we ask you to continue to cause our hearts to marvel at how amazing you are. You have ransomed us from the clutches of sin and made us slaves your good nature and name. We praise you for calling us, for loving us, and for keeping us. Lord, we fall short regularly, but your mercy and grace and love knows no bounds. We praise you for sending Christ to fulfill the law that we fail to keep daily. Lord, may we not just know your holiness, but also know how great of the cost was for us to be made right with you. You demand perfection, which we're unable to do. Yet you became human to fill, fulfill the law perfectly and died for our shortcomings. This is a love that we'll never fully understand, a love that we can never show, but we ask you, Lord, so that you can grow our understanding of your love for us so we can love those who do not know you. Keep us from forgetting the basic gospel 
It is in your merciful, peaceful, and loving son's name. Amen.